Beer Edge is excited to announce a partnership with Pro Brewer that will bring original articles to probrewer.com twice a week, covering issues important to the beer industry and aimed at helping breweries of all sizes understand different facets of the business. Check out our articles on probrewer.com every Tuesday and Thursday, and visit the site daily for other original content and to stay connected with the beer industry. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Lagers get a lot of love at Human Robot Brewing in Pennsylvania, and I'm talking with head brewer Andrew Foss about the brewery's approach and expansion. But first, make sure to check out NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz, where you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. So a few weeks ago, I was in Rochester, New York, judging at the New York State Beer Competition. And on the last day of judging, my pal, Lou Bryson, walked into the room wearing a shirt that asked, got milk tubes? It was from Human Robot, a Philadelphia brewery that has leaned hard on its love of lagers. When the brewery opened two years ago in the site of the former St. Benjamin Brewing, it didn't really get the full splash that it deserved due to the pandemic. But over the last two years, it has slowly built a strong, loyal, local, and vocal fan base that stop by for beers and that are quick to bend the ear of any beer enthusiast that'll listen. Growth is coming quickly to this brewery, as you'll hear from head brewer Andrew Foss. We spoke after the company opened its second location, and Foss is going to be heading up brewing at both, focusing on lagers, kettle sours, and juicy IPAs. So let's get into the beer and hear what's happening with this brewery in the city of brotherly love. Here's our conversation. Like so many things in the pandemic, I have missed travel and Philly is relatively close to where I live, but I, you know, and I would get down there often, but it's now been, you know, closing in on about two years uh, since I was, since I was last down there. Have you noticed any shift in drinker habits, the way you've approached beer, um, or even just the way that Philly has been beer drinking wise during the pandemic that stands out to you? Um, main thing is probably what a lot of other people have noticed, which is just a huge shift to package for small breweries. Um, I know that larger breweries probably have a way higher ratio of you know cans and bottles to draft than the typical craft brewery but we're running about 75 percent cans right now um and that's doing pretty good business in the front which we didn't expect at all when we opened in february 2020 and you know we didn't think we'd be buying a canning line or anything like that what's moving fastest in cans for you guys what's where's the demand uh, for us, it's generally our German Pilsner and um, whatever sort of dry hop Pilsner that we have at the moment are usually the two biggest sellers. Um, and then probably close behind that would be the the 10 Plato Czech Lager. 
I've often thought of Philly. I mean, it, it's I guess it's true no matter where you go, but but Philly as a lager and Pilsner loving town. It, I mean, I, probably that has to do with Yingling uh, being as prevalent as it was. But I also think of you know like Victory and Prima Pils and um, some of the other uh, you know early craft entries that really uh, made good inroads. Are is Philly a, a Pilsner town? Is it a lager town? Uh, I don't know. It seems that way uh, from where I'm sitting right now. Um, but as far as, you know, craft production, I think it's kind of funny because I always thought of Philly as like a as like a Belgian beer enthusiast town. But that really just died like, you know, five or six years ago. Uh, but it had such a stronghold. that, that Is that was- the monk's influence? Probably. Yeah. I mean, Tom started bringing beer over in the eighties, you know? Yeah. So that was, you know, when I moved to Philly, which was early two thousands, even a lot of small craft breweries were doing a lot of Belgian stuff and uh, a lot of places, the iron Hill chains and um, places like that were, were winning a lot of uh, GABF awards for Belgian styles. So that was really big down here um, for a long time. Um, and the shift to lager has been pretty hard. Um, but like I said, that's a lot from where I'm sitting. We we're a lager heavy brewery. There's certainly a ton of, um, you know, IPA houses kicking around here too. When you made the decision to be a lager heavy brewery, what was that born out of? Well, uh, for me, uh, as a brewer, I have a lot more experience brewing lager than probably equal experience to brewing anything else. Um, you know, certainly IPAs and stuff like that. If you took every other style I ever brewed combined, you know, the lager styles would make up half of that at least, uh, which I think is unique for a, for a pub. Well, I was essentially a pub brewer for a long time. Um, and I just sort of think that we were in the right time right place. And, you know, people came in and the loggers were working out. We didn't really set out to do it this way. Um, we sort of set out to, I thought I would have maybe two lines of lager and, you know, eight to 10, you know, hazy beers, fruit beers. Um, thankfully people came in here and drank a lot of clean beer and, you know, that's really my passion to make. Um, so it's worked out nicely that way. But we certainly didn't set out saying, oh, we're going to be the lager kings or whatever. You know, it was just kind of born out of what people came in here and sat down and drank. I mean, what what were you originally trying to push to be? Um, well, we didn't really have that specific of a thing, but the human robot name um, has sort of bred a, you know, brewing styles that are very disparate, you know. So we have a 10 Plato Czech lager you know, is something we always have all the time. And then, you know, we're not really haze beer naysayers. I probably was in, you know, 2016. But um, so we were trying to just said, hey, I want to just do, you know, really the best lager I can do. Um, And, you know, then we'll just, we'll try to make the best hazy IPA it can do because I haven't made a lot of hazy IPA in my career before this. Um, And, Jake and Chris, two of the partners, both had some experience um, on the hot side. And, and Chris certainly was able to steer me in the right direction as far as hopping rates that I just wasn't comfortable with at that point. You know, 
what were the rates like what where where did you start to get twitchy as a brewer hopping rate wise uh you know three plus pounds per barrel on the cold side is is a lot um and it, it took a little convincing for me because you really hit that uh diminishing return point you know somewhere just below two pounds per barrel in my opinion um and but to get that real saturated hop flavor you know we're generally right around three. Some of the beers probably have four to four and a half um, on the dry hop side, but you know, it's just not, not the amount of hops I was used to using. <laughs> I've been hearing a little bit more about diminishing returns. Um, I, it's a conversation that comes up now with, with brewers who I think are one looking at the, you know, the bottom line, um, but two the, you know, the pounds per barrel, um, that was so interesting to a lot of drinkers has now sort of become commonplace, I guess. Um, you know, where, you know, you used to say, Oh, 10 pounds per barrel and people, Oh, wow, that's amazing. Um, and now it doesn't really seem that that's factoring into, to the conversations all that much. Um, when you're tasting a beer, when you're building on a recipe and you're thinking about the, that, that two pound mark, even if you are going up to three or four, um, what do you notice? flavor or aroma wise when you push beyond that point yeah uh, i really notice more than anything um like mouthfeel um i don't know that that can be quantified exactly um but that's sort of you know you can have beers uh finish anywhere from three and a half to like six play-doh um you know speaking of for hazy ipas yeah. and I don't really notice a big difference in the mouthfeel between a three and a half Play-Doh beer and a six Play-Doh beer, you know, with carbonation and everything else. But when you push the dry hop levels, I think that there's just something going on there that, um, you know, just suspends and you get that soft feel that you just can't quite get another way. Um, at least that's what I, that's what I think about it. I'm trying to, I really, really want to talk about loggers with you because <laughs> I imagine that's also what you want to talk about. I, I feel like there's, you know, roads that we could go down hop wise, but um, I also feel like I don't want to waste too much time <laughs> on it um, because you guys are a, a proper lager brewery. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder just sort of going back to the whole, you know, what's Philly like thing some of the conversations that you've had with drinkers, with customers who understand the word lager, uh, but think of it as yingling and how your beers differ from that, obviously. Um, are you having those conversations? Were those early on conversations that don't happen quite as much anymore of, you know, hey, there's more to the world than America's oldest family owned brewery? Hey, there's nothing wrong with yingling. Uh, I'm not. Know. I'm not knocking it. I'm just, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people would uh, argue with me with that one too. But um, yeah, we don't get a ton of that. I mean, we definitely have a couple of like um, what you would, you know, sort of gateway beers. Like we do a light lager uh, during football season, and um, certainly like there's no crazy big flavors in like the Czech Ten or beers like that. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I don't know that I've had that many of those conversations. Usually, uh, you know, people are always just talking bad about Yingling and I'm always kind of like, well, I don't know. They run a pretty good operation up there. You know, maybe Yingling Lager is not my favorite beer in the world, but uh, it's certainly a cool heritage brewery. So yeah, I was very efficient. Steer, yeah. Steer towards, you know, something positive about it. <laughs> How difficult is it to make a light lager on a small scale? Cause I, I, you know, I often think about the large industrial players. Um, and you know, and how they can scale it up. Is it, is that a difficult beer to make on a small scale? Um, it's not any harder to make the individual batches of beer than it is to make anything else and, and have it come out decent. Um, it's a little tricky cause we don't brew it. Uh, I think if you were to go to like the big lager houses, like the light beer places, uh, the big three, I believe most of them are fermenting the beer at like 16 Play-Doh mm. and then watering back with DRA'd water before packaging. Um, and we're putting like an eight and a half Play-Doh lager in the tank. And sometimes, you know, the yeast just doesn't want to build up that steam um, because it's out of food by the time it's done fermenting. You know, it's not, we've had longer conditioning times uh, than expected for sure. Um, so there's, that's a little bit of a challenge. And I think if, if we were to go batch to batch consistency against, you know, anybody who's making serious volumes of beer, you know, they would, they would be teasing us about, you know, this being a little off and that being a little off. Uh, but we really prioritize just that the beer is a good experience to drink over, you know, being, exactly a certain number of IBUs or something like that, uh, which I think is common in craft beer. You know, I, I go for the, the enjoyment of it more than the specs of it um, in some regard. Obviously, you have to have your ABV, you know, right there um, and your color and stuff. But I think if you were to pull, you know, four batches, you would probably – notice that one's maybe a little drier or one he's a little more bitter or yeah. better head retention or whatever. Um, so I, I don't think it's hard to make a clean light beer, but I think if, if you had a product that had to be exactly the same every time, that would be really hard at a small scale. I love that you brought up enjoyment because I think a lot of times, maybe not a lot of times, but you know, now and again, uh, the, overthinking of a beer can be distracting to the overall act of, of, of trying to find enjoyment in a pint. Um, you want your beers to be enjoy enjoyed and to have like an enjoyment factor behind it. I imagine. Um, how do you approach that? How do you, how do you think about that when you're planning out a recipe and then hopefully an execution? The enjoyment factor. Um, yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm usually just um, trying to explore something that um, I'm interested in, which is usually, you know, on the lower side of ABV um, and having some historical significance for beer in general and being like within a, within a certain style. Um, but for sure, like, 
I don't know, there are probably styles I wouldn't really want to brew because I don't necessarily love them. But um, when you have... <laughs> What's an example of that? Uh, so for me, that would be like rock beer. Um, I'm not a big <sighs> smoke beer fan. Oh, man. Um, but you have come on to the wrong show, my friend. <laughs> you know, it is one of those things, though. Like, uh, I was fortunate enough to travel to Bamberg, like, I think it was 2016, 2017. And, you know, to sit at Schlankerla and, you know, it's not hard to drink three smoked uh, Martzens when you're there. No. And you can kind of taste through the smoke. And it, it took being there and doing that to really teach me that. Um, but, you know, we'll, we run smoked beer two, three times a year here. And I'll always sit down and have two or three glasses of it at some point. Um, but it's not usually my first choice of, like, go-to beer. Okay. All right. So then back to the, what you do enjoy then and thinking about low ABV and yeah. I don't know what, what else, what else sort of like moves you as a, as, as a brewer to, to find something that you can put into a glass that not only you're going to enjoy, but that you want people who, who tuck into a pint to experience. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's just the, you know, there's just a little more, two things than just coming up with a recipe and, and thinking, you know, okay, it matches these specs or, or those specs. Um, you know, for me, it's more just wanting to like, I like beer that has some complexity to it. I, I think some people would complain about our lagers that they probably have a little bit of sulfur from time to time and things like that. Uh, but to me, like, I just like a beer that has a lot of character um, it's, I think it's probably easier to make a, a squeaky clean, uh, beer, especially, you know, if you're just, you know, long diacetyl rest and carb stones and a DE filter, you know, but it just sucks a lot of the life out of it. So that's what, for us, we're trying to make clean, naturally produced, um, you know, as far as we don't use carb stones on the beer, um, on the lager beer, um, you know, we don't use any heavy filtration. We will use a little bit of biofine clear here and there. Um, but, you know, just simple, simple, but not too rustic is sort of what I'm always shooting for with our stuff. Do you feel like that that's giving your loggers a sense of place, a sense of identity as human robot? Uh, I hope so. I know that, um, you know, we've done a couple collabs. Um and one of the first collabs we did was with the seed in Atlantic city. Yeah. And, um, so we kind of went down there and did a, um, we did a mash that we do on a couple of our beers here, which is like a, basically a thin mash decoction. It's sort of like a, a turbid mash. And then, you know, so we did that and then we talked to them about how we do our fermentations and uh, speaking to Sean a couple of weeks later, he just was like, this does not taste like one of our beers at all. Like this tastes like one of your beers. Uh, so that was kind of fun because he was like, he kind of felt like he got some of the, the house character by doing it our way at his place. Um, you know, so we just kind of want to have people drink the beer and it's hard with a lager because uh, they're so ubiquitous. Uh, but we wanted just to have it stand out that little bit. Um, always looking for those, those tiny improvements to, uh, on the hot side or, you know, in fermentation or whatever. 
I wonder from your perspective, because I, I, I think people are trying to put their own spin on beers or have something that is a signature taste. And I, I talk about it a lot with house culture when people are, are talking about mixed firm beers or, um, you know, occasionally there's uh, the hop profiles or uh, ways of hopping that uh, particular brewers stand out uh, 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 among the rest. But with so many brewers out there these days, having a unique identity, is that, do, do, does that strike you as important? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, especially being on on the the brewing in the industry and knowing other brewers, um, there are certainly uh, people around who it's like, oh man, this this is definitely one of his beers, you know. And uh, I worked for Brian O'Reilly, who owns Mainstay, and is the the brewmaster there um, yeah. for about a year. And when his, he was at Mainstay, or back in the Sly Fox days, that was at Mainstay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, and his beers are, are just like ultra clean and have like a, a really bright dryness to them. And it's, you know, you pull it. I just feel like I know his beer when I taste it. Um, and, you know, that's that's something, you know, my my beer is pretty different from his. Um, but it's something that I saw in him working with him that, that I really admired was like, wow, his beer is like just very dialed in crisp and clean. Um, and so, you know, that puts a thought in your head where you're like, well, you know, what's, what's my, you know, what's my thing going to be or whatever. Um, so I don't know, working, working for somebody like him was, was a great experience in that way because, you know, it was, it was all his voice. Um, and you see that in brewing when, when you see brewers leave a place and go somewhere else um, they might reinvent a little bit or change a few things, but uh, it's always them. Yeah. Individual voice, I think is so important. I mean, it can also be limiting, right? Because, you know, a lot of people want one size fits all, or, you know, if with craft still being a, a small part of the marketplace, um, if people are accustomed to a beer tasting a certain way at one place, and then it's, it's, it's different someplace else, you know, you might bring some fans along, you might alienate some people um, in the long run. Um, how have you been trying to position your beers in the consumer conversation, you know, to, to find the people who will understand respect like and keep coming back for what you're doing uh i don't know i mean as far as like reaching out i mean from my perspective it's you know i'm just in the bag of house you know in the nerdery uh making beers um usually i'm bouncing the ideas off of the other partners um who are probably much more informed consumers than me and you know certain stuff just gets shot down real hard and then other stuff that you don't expect, you know, is becomes something that everybody's very interested in. Um, so I don't know, we just kind of try to try to do our own thing and we've been really fortunate um, more than anything else that, that people have just consistently shown up for us and, and, you know, sort of uh, shared our beers with people and things like that. Um, yeah, I just think we've been really lucky in that regard. I don't, I don't know if that there's been a lot of deliberate, um, sort of 
aside from just sort of being excited about lager beer, I, I don't know what else, you know, sort of gets people here besides just that they word of mouth or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Where there's so much tradition to lagers, there is a lot of, uh, there's been a lot written. There's been a lot practiced. Uh, people understand uh, different flavors and different styles. Where, where do you see paths for innovation in lagers or at least, or different paths to try, maybe not innovative in, innovation wise, but just process wise, ingredients wise, where are you looking to mix it up and have some fun? Um, well, so for us, um, the, the newest series that we newest thing we've been getting into has been using some aged hops in the lagers. Um, we've only really put out one beer, uh, so far with them, uh, two actually. Um, but the whole idea was born out of us. We produce work for fermentary form. Oh yeah. And so, and I've been producing work for, for them. It's too long of a story to get into, but I used to make their work since like 2016 when they started 2016, 2017. Yeah. Um, and then when I, when I came to human robot, it was like, Hey, we're back. You know? So he, he comes up here and, and, and we do the work for him. Uh, but basically he always has a lot of aged hops around, um, European varieties, some UK varieties. Um, and I, I was hanging out with Ethan like two years ago, right before the world shut down. And, uh, I definitely saw those, those bags of hops that he had opened up all <laughs> yeah. over the place. Yeah. Yeah stashed into corners and yeah exactly so you know when those hit the kettle it's there's so much more going on than uh old cheesy hop uh so we've just been intrigued by that and and sort of just waited for the right time to to make some beer with them um we did a beer with ethan last year where we just did one of his recipes but fermented it with lager yeast instead of uh instead of sending it down to him to uh, go into barrels. And, you know, we were pretty happy with the beer. He was very happy with the beer. And so it just kind of said, well, there's something we got to work on when we have some tank space. So you and know. There, there is a noticeable difference between his recipe and, and the, the, the strains that he's normally using and the lager yeast. Yeah. He's, he's all mixed fermentation. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely pushing some lactic acid. Um, he's not always barrel aging, but it's always a mixed culture that he's using. So the beers were, I mean, wildly different. Um, and it was fun. We got to pour them side by side at an event. Um, so that was a pretty cool thing to do too. Well, I mean, talk to me what the lager yeast did to, to those hops, like how, how it was wildly different. Like how did the yeast character, yeah. Change them side by side. Uh, probably the, the biggest thing would just be that hit the mixed firm, you know, finished his beers, finished very low, um, you know, less than one Play-Doh, I think most of the time. And, uh, you know, our beer and I don't have notes in front of me, but if it's, it probably finished around two and a half Play-Doh. So, you know, his beer was noticeably a lot drier. Um, he's all bottle conditioned, um, or if it's draft, they're conditioned in the kegs too. Um, 
So, and very high carbonation where we were, you know, we, we're all, uh, spooned for carbonation. Uh, sometimes we croisin for carbonation, but usually just a uh, pressure on the fermenter. Um, so, you know, we were like lower carb, um, and it, it was amazing. It was just kind of a clean lager, but it had a, just a different kind of funk to it. Um, and if I recall, there was only one hop addition around 90 minutes, which, um, that is his, I shouldn't give up his secrets, but that's what we usually do <laughs> is just a single, a single large hop addition very early. Um, so that's what we did with that beer. Um, and oddly enough, the the foam on that beer was just insane. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the hops or not. You know, it was also a single infusion lager, which is something we never do here, but it was his beer. So, yeah. When you were saying before uh, that you were waiting for the right time to start messing around with, uh, with age Thompson lagers, um, was that simply waiting for tank space to open up or for the hops to get to a point where you felt they were ready to be used? Um, no, mostly, mostly like, uh, having a little bit of tank space, um, having, you know, a good pitch of yeast to split. Um, cause we'll, we have to kind of fit a beer like that in around the normal production schedule. Um, and then also sort of <laughs> making sure we had enough beer that if it, it, just was a total flop. We could get rid of it without, <laughs> you know, without putting a hiccup in our, in our production. Um, thankfully everyone here is on board with doing stuff like that once in a while. And sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. So, so as you think about, well, what was the second batch that you did? Uh, the second one that we did was a rye lager with, um, a blend of, I think the hops were 2011 Hallertau middle fruit um, that have been sitting open at Ethan's place since 2015 or 2016. Um, so they had some age on them and yeah. we split those with some fresh hops in a very low gravity um, sort of amber lager with rye. Um, and I couldn't have been happier how that beer turned out. Um, how so? Uh, it was just enjoyable. It kind of had a, a strange, um, you know, farmhousey Saison type of a feel to it. Okay. Um, but you know, it had, a, had that nice, the, the body that you get out of a, out of a naturally carved beer certainly is a little different than, than, um, than like a carved up, you know, carbstone, uh, carbonated beer. And it was just kind of a really, uh, raw kind of a little bit of sulfur. Um, we did a very, a little colder fermentation than we do in our normal, like German style stuff. Um, so I don't know, I was just very happy with how it turned out. And then, you know, so we're all standing around tasting it off the tank and, and very excited. Um, and we had a stitch foss to throw on the bar, uh, the night before we released it. And we're all just kind of standing there like, are they going to love it or are they going to hate it? Cause you just never know. Um, and it was well received, thankfully. Um, cause I really, even though I was really happy with it, I just could see it, uh, not being <laughs> enjoyed by everyone. And, you know, we, we were fortunate people really, really liked it. Um, especially when it's a low ABV beer, I think this beer is 3.6%, maybe 3.4. Um, 
so there's a lot going against a beer like that. It's, it's a unique flavor, low alcohol. Um, yeah, thankfully people came in here and drank it up, you know? So as you think about continuing on with the series and, and experimenting, uh, around with it, um, where's your mind been, been wandering to Are there hops that you want to try? Are there, you know, tweaks to the process? Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of different types of, uh, Styrian Goldings that we've had sitting in our, uh, in our, it's not our boiler room, but it's by the boiler. Um, okay. so, uh, we've got a couple, couple bags of Styrian Goldings, uh, some Styrian Bobeck, some Styrian Salea, um, and a lot of Hello Tom middle fruit, um, just kind of sitting there soaking it up. Um, you know, we, I think we're going to push low ABV and high color for the most part in these beers. It just seems to work. Uh, but we'll certainly do a couple pale beers and, and probably some standard, you know, 12 Play-Doh uh, lager with them as well. Um, and then the other side of that is based on the results that we're getting and what we think, uh, we're already starting to think we're going to start working a portion of aged hops into a couple of the, the standard beers that we do. Um, you know, we don't want to make big changes overnight, but we are always trying to to make incremental improvements in the beer. Um, and some of the beers I think could benefit from it, but I just really haven't brewed with them enough to, to definitively say like, Oh yeah, that's going to make a great change in this beer, you know? Yeah. But I mean, like, like what would be, it, it, so if you're saying they could benefit from it, um, what do you hope the flavor or the aromas would be um, sort in, of in that? Like, how, like what would be the benefit in, 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 uh, from, uh, from your palate standpoint? From, from my standpoint, I just think you can get uh, a little bit of like um, an earthier type of flavor, almost, almost the way that some um, English beer kind of has like a mossy, like loamy background flavor to it. Um, and that, that was what I, what I really tasted in the, um, the sweet, the, the, three and a half percent aged hop lager. Uh, so we did use a portion of those hops in the next batch of our uh, Zwickel beer. Uh, it's called Bergenstrasse, um, but it was a pretty small portion. We, re- we didn't want to make a, a noticeable change to the beer. Um, but I think we're just going to try to work them in here and there where we think it's appropriate and just kind of compare to what, what our results had been before. Um, it's not like we're going to just stop, stop buying fresh hops and start throwing old stuff in all the time, but, um, certainly, certainly with the Bergenstrasse, that beer specifically is one that I'm, I'm thinking about it on. So, um, and we're happy with the batch that, that it was used in, but you know, I can't say that that's, that's why, you know? Yeah. See, now you're making me thirsty to come down to Philly and to, to, to drink, but I I'd have to figure out which of your two locations to go and visit. Um, first, I guess I'd probably try to go to both, but, um, uh, so you guys just opened up a second location. We did. Yeah. Um, we opened a place in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. It's called the house. Um, it was a former location. There've been two breweries there before. Um, and we bought it from the Creek. 
Um, we just had our opening this weekend. Things yeah. are really great so far. So who was who in it before them? Uh, before Nishamini, it was called Guild Hall. Okay. Um, they were not open for very long. Um, you know, that was probably in 2015, 2016. Okay. Yeah. I know the Nishamini location, so I know I've, I've been there. Um, uh, and reception has been good since you guys have opened. Yeah. It's just been a few good. days, but yeah. A lot of, uh, so we're like seven miles apart, uh, and it's a straight shot up, up broad street. We've been spending way too much time in the van running beer back and forth, but when you guys made the decision to uh, have a second location, um, I, I, I'm always curious about breweries with multiple locations and how they try to make the places complementary or totally different from each other or, you know, franchise, not franchise it out, but make it, you know, familiar from the second you walk in. Um, when you were thinking about this second location, what did you want it to be in relation to your existing place, your, your, your first location? Um, well, the main thing, um, you know, without getting into too much like front office stuff, um, we, we lease our entire location, uh, on fifth street in Philly. So for one, it was just an opportunity to own, to own something, um, you know, both the equipment, and the building uh, where here we rent everything except for the kegs and a couple of tanks that we bought. I mean, we rent the brew house. So, yeah, um, you know, having something that's our own was one side of it. And uh, the other side of it is just that, you know, we get a lot of people who are from the area, but don't want to come into the city. Um, you know, it's kind of unfamiliar to a lot of people that drive down to our fifth street location and, you know, parallel park on the street and it's, you don't get, uh, quite people. You only really get the adventurers down here. We're not like in central Philadelphia or anything like that. Um, so being up there, you know, it's kind of a place where some of the people from the suburbs have easier access to us. Um, and then it also, you know, there's a brew house there and we did, I wouldn't say we need capacity strictly in barrels uh but to keep a decent variety of beers on it's nice to have a another brew house to just go knock something out on and have some draft beer um and then run them up and down broad street and then run them up and down broad street yeah so if somebody's been to your first location though um and they haven't been to to the new spot yet um are there going to be noticeable differences or is it going to feel like human robot to them when they walk in? Uh, certainly there's some differences. Uh, we have a different uh, food partner up there. So um, on fifth street, we have Poe's sandwich joint. Um, he does, you know, like family recipe, Italian hoagies and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Like a bon mi hoagie. Um, you know, so we have Poe's here and he's, he's got his own thing going on and, and it's just a great, relationship for us um you know his food's great and he gets a lot of takeout business here and it's a good deal for both of us that we don't have to run a kitchen uh so we like that model um but for this we partnered with um world fair hospitality um we knew the owners from previous events that we had done so they, they they're doing like a you know german 
German-ish menu with a lot of American stuff on it. Um, but it's kind of the same deal up there as it is here. We don't really have like uh, servers and a full wait staff. You kind of get your drinks at the bar, you order your food from from the the kitchen, and they send it out. Um, so it's not like a full service restaurant. Um, but up there is a it's a it's a large building, a lot of seating, um, a lot of natural light. It's a really nice space. Um, not that our Philly location isn't, um, <laughs> but it, it's small. Um, and we, we probably will have more beers on tap in Jenkintown as well. We, we kind of cobbled together the draft system out of some of the stuff that was already there and ended up with, uh, a lot of beer lines. So if we have a lot of draft, we'll be pouring more variety up there probably. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, on the show for, I don't know how long now I've been asking folks as, as we start to wind down, um, I've been leading with the premise of my wife and I were rewatching The Good Place uh, last year, and there's this whole concept on the show of being able to walk through a green door and being anywhere at any point in history with anybody that you would want to be with. And if such technology existed on this plane of existence and you could uh, finish this conversation and walk through a green door and be in any pub or any brewery um, anywhere with anybody that you wanted, where would you go? Who would you be with? What would you want to drink? Oof. Uh, I, if I could go anywhere, I would want to go to the Abbey at Orval, uh, with my partner Moira. Uh, that would be, you know, my happy place. Certainly never been. Uh, gotta get the vert. Yeah. Beer related that it would be that, you know, uh, that, that's a great answer. That's perfect. Uh, that's, that's my, uh, that's probably my number one beer, you know, as much as I love lager and I probably only have five or six or vowels a year, but, uh, man, that beer is just the mountaintop for me. Yeah. Uh, if you could only have one of your beers for a year, I would probably have would you pick? the check 10, the 10 yeah. check lager, uh, that's pretty much how my life is now. Anyway, that's, that's the beer. <laughs> um, but yeah, that beer is right up my alley, you know, and you can have a couple and, and still be pretty functional, which is nice too. I dig it. Andrew, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for yeah, sharing thanks. insights on what's happening. And uh, I'm really curious to keep following this age hops uh, in your lager adventure. So um Hope to hope to be down and taste them in person and chat with you in person soon. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. What is on your beer bucket list? And what do you hope to have in your glass soon enough? Let me know. You can email me. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. A reminder to check out beeredge.com for our This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and you can follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, we're at TW Rauk Beer. We're able to bring you the show each week thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you would like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. And also be sure to check out NZ Hops. 
a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz, or you can find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. As always, a reminder to check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Still, this beer has new episodes on every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.